calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Now I just want to dike out about pathological liars because... <laughs> Are there more of them in the dike community? Because I have met two. The fact that we all, that we lit up ah. when you said pathological yeah. liar and had examples ready, yeah. I'm diking out, you're diking out. Let's dike out together. See what it's all about. Diking out, diking out, diking out, diking out. Hi, and welcome to Dyking Out, a podcast that is gatekeeping Drake from the lesbian community. You're welcome. I'm Carolyn Bergier. I'm Melody Kamali, and today we're dyking out with writer Zoe Whittle about the queer lit community. And I'm just going to go ahead and say we can gatekeep Drake from that, too. Okay, he doesn't belong. No. Scram. Couple of announcements. We are still hosting these L Word watch parties at Henrietta Hudson's every Friday. So do check those out. Come see us there. We're having the time of our lives. Also, if you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five stars if you're nasty. A little blurb of a review goes a long way and really helps people find us. And we're just trying to collect queers for our advancement of the gay agenda. Help us out. Join the army. Yes. And, you know, we've taken uh, some some big strides in terms of advancing the agenda for our community. I would say that our Rosie episode got a lot of straights into the folds. We had a lot of straight people listening. Oh, yeah. If you came back for another episode, if you want us to even think of considering you as an ally, you better rate us five stars and review. We also want to thank everybody for all of your kind words. Uh, we had a lot of people saying that they were crying tears of joy for us while listening to the Rosie app. It means a lot. We felt the love. We felt the support, especially for everyone who was there uh, from the start and knows everything that went into this wild, wild journey to get to our convo with Ro, our new BFF. It happened. Where do we go from here? I'm excited to find out. 
Isn't it crazy that now I'm in a thruple with Rosie O'Donnell? Yeah, on record from on Rosie record. O'Donnell. Oh, I'm My sorry, Ro. Guys, <laughs> Ro. we're yep. on that kind of <laughs> But back to normal business. Melody, what's the gayest thing you did this week? Hands down has to be getting a over two hour astrology and tarot session a few days ago. I think nothing is queerer than astrology lately. And I've always, you know, we hear us joking about being Capricorns, but like, I don't actually know that much. Um, And (laughs) what I do know is like probably false because it's all from meme pages. And actually, I talked to this astrologer about how much they hate meme pages. And actually, I was at the beach the next day with David Odyssey. He's a journalist, performer. He is also an astrologer for Nylon Magazine. And he said the same thing. He says he actually mutes people on Instagram who post anything from these meme pages. He says they're false. There's so much more nuance to it. And I learned that in my session, I booked this with her name is Kristen Rand. You can find her on Instagram at good witch mama. She has the best energy out of anyone I've ever met. I originally met her years back at a comedy festival. Um, she is so good at tarot. She really tells a story with it. Everything she told me about my chart and, um, things I like might not connect with when it comes to Capricorn. She was telling me all this before I could even tell her, you know, she would just like read my chart, speak for 10 minutes and kind of stop and be like, how does that resonate? And I'd be like, "Mm, 100% perfectly. Like it was eerie. Um, And I learned about like the houses. I'm a 12th house Capricorn son, and I've never connected with the workhorse, like social climby stuff with, the Capricorn stereotype. And I learned it's because of the house I was born. It was when the sun was in the 12th house. 12th house is very spacey, mystical. Actually, um, David Odyssey was like, it makes so much sense that you're a podcaster. This 12th house Capricorn sun, by the way, David Bowie and Aaliyah were both 12th house Capricorn sons, not to brag. Um, and was like, it's very voice of a generation. It's very, you're, um, speaking for your generation and also eat it Lena Dunham <laughs> yeah I know that's the first thing I thought too <laughs> and it's so funny because Kristen said these same words too and was like you're um making a lasting impact that like extends past like into like legacy and so she was like it makes sense that you're like podcasting yes. um and they also said it makes sense that you edit maybe over edit I'm like well, I'm literally a video editor <laughs> yeah um <laughs> like a lot of it I don't know was spot on and I highly recommend getting like a more thorough chart reading if you're interested in this if you're curious about this and sort of disregarding all the meme pages I know they can be fun but I think that's like sort of what they're for just fun and not to be taken so seriously they really made me like hate everything about my chart because it is a Capricorn stellium so much of my placements are in Capricorn but like when you look at the chart and the houses like I don't know I would always look for different placements that weren't Capricorn so I'd be like ooh I have an Aries Mars I'm going to run with that and like look into what that meant. Yeah. Um, so it made me love being a Capricorn again. And astrology is gay. What do you want? What do you want from me? <laughs> um, <laughs> Carolyn? Yes. 
my fellow Capricorn, what is the gayest thing you did this week? Well, my nephews came to visit and we went to Legoland. And some of you know, my wife Cecilia is a big fan of Legos. So we have an extensive Lego collection. Cecilia had already been to Legoland when her sister came to visit and her sister bought her the Pride limited edition Lego set. So it is basically the wow. uh, the progress rainbow, which includes like the black, brown, and then mm-hmm. the trans colors in it. It's like a kind of L-shape build. And then there's a corresponding mini figure that matches each of the colors standing on it. So my cousins came and Cecilia brought some of her Legos out for them. Okay, I've and- looked it up. Yes. It's okay, right? So gay. So gay. (laughs) Everything, everyone is awesome. Right. Lego, everyone is awesome. Yes. And my one nephew has been really into rainbows and all of his drawings, everything. He likes the order of the colors and he's always drawing rainbows. So he loved the set. My younger one, he likes to mix things up. So then they were kind of like fighting because one kept trying to mix up the colors and then the other one likes the order. So when we (laughs) went to Legoland with them, we got them each their own pride set and they were so happy. And when they got back to Buffalo, they built them and then FaceTimed me to show uh, Cecilia and I their gay Lego sets. It was so cute. That's so cute. Very gay. That's so gay. (laughs) building the gay lego sets <laughs> gifted from gay aunts it's all so homosexual it is it is and on that note i think we should get into our very homo heavy interview for this week per usual we do have a special note though speaking of homos um, there is a White Lotus spoiler for all of you queers that are watching White Lotus and maybe haven't finished yet. When you hear Zoe bring up White Lotus, maybe skip ahead a minute uh, yeah, so that you miss that spoiler. So today we are diking out with poet, novelist, and TV writer Zoe Whittle about the queer writing community or the queer lit community, however you want to call it. She's in it. She's the author of three previous novels, including the Lambda winning Holding Still for as Long as Possible and her well-known debut, Bottle Rocket Hearts. She's written collections of poetry. She's also a Canadian Screen Award winning TV and film writer with credits on one of our favorites, Baroness Von Sketch Show, Shit's Creek and Degrassi Heard of It. Drake, uh, her latest novel, The Spectacular, is out. Let's go. Zoe, thank you so much for being here and diking out with us today. How are you? I am so psyched to be here. Yes, it's a big day. Yeah, it's a big day. This is the Canadian Pub Day, and uh, it's coming up on September 14th in America, so I'm pretty psyched about that. Yes. yes. And the pub date of what exactly? Tell our listeners right. what book they'll be buying soon. Uh, so the book is called The Spectacular. It's a novel. It, um, and there's a lot of queerness in it, like all my novels. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. I have to say this is the first book of yours that I've read, but I 
now need to read more. You are such a phenomenal writer. Thank you. I felt like I was reading like memoirs of different people. Like these characters feel right. so real and the writing mm. is it's so on point. And the the stories you tell and the themes and the topics you cover. Um, do you want to tell everybody what it's about? But it, it's just so good. And I just have to say, read it for yourself. But but Zoe, give your pitch. <laughs> sure. It's kind of a hard book to give an elevator pitch for. But so right. far, <laughs> because there are three narrators, three different time periods. But basically, it's a book about sex and autonomy and reproductive freedoms and motherhood. And it sort of came to be because I spent the last 15 years now, almost, well, really about a decade every day waking up and being like, should I have a kid? And my ex, my ex-wife didn't want to have kids. And we were together for most of my thirties and it was a big thing. And then my boyfriend after that already had kids and it was never the right time. I never had enough money. And so every day I was like, should I, or shouldn't I, should I, or shouldn't I? And then, so through the characters in this book, I sort of gave them all different moments in their lives where they were debating it trying to avoid it at all costs, really wanting it, like all the kind of different emotional realities um, of of making that decision, especially since like queer people, there's so much has to go into that decision. You can't just fuck up and have a glass of wine one night and, and make it happen. Right. So, so, yeah. So that was, that's sort of what it's about. And it's in some parts, it's a love story between in the la- latter half of the book, it's a love story between a femme and a trans man, kind of a doomed mismatched attachment style love affair. Love it. Love it. And yeah, what what you just said about being queer and and getting pregnant, I was just talking to somebody else and we were like, it really is unfortunate that it doesn't happen accidentally for us and that you really have to be so intentional about it. It's probably better for the kid that it has to be so intentional. Um, But at the same time, it it never feels like a good time. It always feels like, well, like, let's wait a little bit more, wait until this happens Mm -hmm. or that. And the planning of it can just derail you to until you're at a point where it's too late. That's exactly what happened to me. I used to have a joke in my stand-up set that was like, I'm not going to do the joke right, but basically (laughs) I procrastinated for 10 years and now I just don't have a kid. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I was just going to say. As a procrastinator, I think that would like put me off (laughs) even longer on that project. It's just, yeah, feels like work. (laughs) And it is work. Yeah. It's crazy. It's so much work. It's work. It's money. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's a great book in the way it unfolds and like real pleasure reading. Thank um, you. I brought it along with me to Provincetown last week and, and it was a great uh, beach read. I will say. Gay um, beach read, yes. Yes. Uh, well, Zoe, we hope you're having a great week so far. We'd like to know what is the gayest thing you've done in the last week? The last week. Um, well, like this morning I rode my bike wearing really old Birkenstocks and no bra to the coffee shop. That's pretty gay. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. That's first thing off the top of my head. Wow. (laughs) Thoroughly gay. Yeah. Uh, and, and like larger context of gay things going on in your life, you are moving outside of Toronto and tell us a little bit about the area that you're moving to. So I'm moving to a town called Picton and it's in a county called Prince Edward County. And so many, I don't know if this is happening in the States, but so many people are leaving the city and there's so many, yeah, yeah. (laughs) there's so many queer people going to this particular area that we've started calling it Prince Edward County. 
uh, we I, gotta go. I know we. Yeah. It's on the list now. We have to come. Uh, and a lot of writers I, out there too. A lot of artists. I wish we had been more thoughtful when we picked where we were moving and picked a, a lesbian uh, outpost, I guess, right? of New York City. Are there any? Where could we like move? Beacon? New Beacon, York. I guess, would have been. Yeah, Beacon is very, very gay, but a little mm-hmm. further out than I wanted. But that sounds great. And how rural is it? I mean, you grew up in a rural environment, correct? Yes. I grew up on a farm in the eastern townships in Quebec. Yeah. And so Picton is is a town. It's bigger than than any small town I've lived in, but it's still quite, you know, it's it's a real tourist hub, so it's kind of hard to quantify. But um yeah, it's it's very small compared to Toronto. And h- how far is it just outside of Toronto? I my family lives in Buffalo, so I'm actually mm. like calculating in my head like is this a day trip? Like <laughs> I think it probably would be a day trip from Buffalo. Yeah. Yeah. It could be. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, geographic border- challenge, but did the border reopen yet? Am I? Oh, we got to get to Prince Lesworth. You can't just drop that I know. name <laughs> on diking out. We're there. We're making a pilgrimage. <laughs> so you're you're an author. You do stand-up. You're a screenwriter. Tell our listeners a little bit about your background that I'm very envious of. <laughs> so I've been, a, I started as a poet and uh, it was the 90s. So I had like a bad Ani DeFranco musician stage for a couple of years. And then mm-hmm. I realized I'm not a good singer. And then after that, I moved into fiction and I published my first novel in 2007. And it's um, it's called Bottle Rocket Hearts. And it's actually like a coming out story about a young femme in Montreal around the 1995 referendum. And it's about her falling in love with an older woman who... Um, is a bit of a con artist. It's a bit of a like torturous first dyke love affair story. <laughs> I love it. Oh and then my, my, my second novel is called Holding Soul for as Long as Possible and trying to turn it into a TV show right now. And that is a, a love triangle between a trans guy and two queer women. And it's a lot about different types of anxiety disorders. And, uh, and then this, the next book was The Best Kind of People. And I'll get into this later when we talk about like the realities of being a queer writer and writing queer content. Um, but this book took a bit of a turn and it was more of a traditional like family novel, social novel. It was, it was kind of about the family of a guy who's a teacher who's um, accused of sexual assault where he teaches. And it's, but it's from the point of view of the people around him and what they, how they react and, and their kind of emotional realities in the wake of those accusations. And then now this is the spectacular, which I'm calling like my, my sex and abortion and babies book. <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to summarize and I also so about you know before best kind of people came out I started writing tv and I got into tv because I started taking stand-up comedy classes while I was writing the best kind of people because it was such a serious book and I needed an outlet and I always have this I love that yeah I always had this fantasy of of trying stand-up comedy and I've been a, an obsessive fan since I was a teenager and like I used to have Janine Garofalo sets memorized and stuff. Yes. And so, and so I just thought I'd try it out and it turned out to be really fun. And I, I'm not a professional by any stretch, but it did lead me into the world of comedy writing. And um, I started out on the show Degrassi, which lots of gay content there. Yes, really? Yes, definitely. Heard of it. Yeah. Really. <laughs> and like really warm, amazing group of people that I met there. It was like the perfect way to start a kind of side career. And, um, and I've just been sort of, uh, chipping away at it ever since. 
Baroness yeah. Von Sketch. I know, I like, is she going to say it? One creeps. of my favorite shows. Right. So good. Oh, I'm so I glad love... to hear you say it. Sometimes Americans don't know, but I'm like, it is incredible. It's like, I don't know so why you should know. don't know. Yeah. 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 Everyone watch Baroness Von Sketch show. Yeah. It is it's it's so, gay. so good. It's so gay. Yeah. yeah. And I wanted to know just like what that writer's room, how gay it actually is, because they just feel so queer even when they're not explicitly. Right. Um, the room was really, uh, really diverse in terms of who was in it was but it was all mostly women and like pretty big probably like 10 15 people in the room at a time which I guess is small by American standards but it felt big so it was always like the the actors who also produced the show and then a couple of staff writers and then they they do this thing which I think was based on how the kids in the hall used to do it where they had writers come in for two three weeks at a time and just sort of cycle through and um, so I was one of those writers that kind of came in for three four weeks at a time and uh, yeah we had a lot of amazing queer writers on that show, like Carolyn Taylor, who's in the cast. Yeah. yeah, She's incredible. And then, um, May Martin, who was uh, May Martin from Feel Good and, uh, Sabrina Jalise, who's been in everything. Yes. And, uh, gosh, Elvira Kurt, who's awesome. Like just lots of like really A-list like comedians who kind of went through and so many others too. Like just like the, the, when you look at the writers on that show, there's, there's so much talent. And I was really kind of um, really new to sketch comedy. And so people were very gentle with me though. And like, (laughs) it was kind of great to be an outsider because I didn't really know all the like dynamics of that community and it was fun. But it was a really actually out of all the comedy rooms I've been in, it was the, it was the kindest and the most fun. Oh, great, I bet. great to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Well, that sounds course. like a paradise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, with that, let's get into our topic uh, about the queer writing community. So you mentioned you've done poetry, screenwriting, novelists. Do you have a, a favorite or do you like mixing it up? You know, I've recently started to really love short stories and I have a new collection coming out in 2023 called Wild Failure. And I used to be very flummoxed by the form. And now I think I really find the constraint of it all quite fulfilling. Um, And so I think that's that's my favorite right now. Um, But I also just love writing half hour comedies. You know, yeah. they're fun. They're fun. Like, you know, it's a different kind of a, an, an attachment that, that I can have to TV because TV always change. TV always changes. And also like you put all your heart and soul into one 30 page script and then network executives are like, no, we don't want it. And then you have to move on really quick. So you have to have like less. Attachment. Right. <laughs> and also anything that gets to screen is going to be written by 15 people. And so it's like it's different with books where it's your own and it's precious and you have control over it. I kind of am really lucky in that I started going into television because I wanted to make a living and I ended up loving it just as much as fiction, which was like a a real blessing. Since you started uh, your career in in writing, um, how has the queer lit scene evolved? I imagine it's been very different in terms of both reception from uh, publishers, but also the community of, of writers themselves. Yes, it's really changed since I put my last book out in 2016, like just incredibly different. Um, but especially since 2007, when my first novel came out, I really feel like back then you could only get ahead as a queer writer who wrote queer content and wasn't cl- closeted if there was like an underground queer like kind of secret world where people helped each other out. Like I got my first funding grant because there happened to be a lesbian on the jury 
I was introduced to my agent through a lesbian writer. I know I got my first, uh, you know, everybody said no to my first book, but there was a gay editor who saw promise in it. Like all of these things kind of worked out like that. And I was actually listening to Matilda Sycamore this morning on a Tin House podcast. And she was talking about how, how many rejections she would get that all said the same thing where they were like, we really like your voice. We really love what you're doing, but we don't know how to market you. And that was kind of the, the, the phrase that, that a lot of queer writers would get because they were, it wasn't a sound investment, right? Mm. Especially with corporate publishers. And so like, even with my second novel and like someone from a really big corporate publisher in the States, an editor sent me a private note to say that she loved the book and that she had a trans boyfriend and wanted, you know, really wanted to publish it. Um, but they just marketing would say no. And that we don't, we don't know how, how to reach the audience. And, um, and I think that this is just the way it was. And there was just, there was a sense that like any kind of res- like um, any kind of critic or like critical reviews inside the literary establishment would be like really hard to imagine. And so, but if you think about the last like five, six years, there are major queer writers now who get reviewed in the Paris Review and in the New York Times, like it's no longer um, strange. Like, and we used to, I think when I first came out, there was this niche of queer writer. There'd be like a shelf at the major bookstores that was for the LGBT section. And there was like, right. we, we used to have a gay bookstore in Montreal. Like there was its own world, but it would just kind of operated within its own, like it had its own system. Like I remember with my second book, I said, Oh, I, I know Eileen miles and I could ask Sarah Shulman for a quote. Like when we were talking, talking to my publisher about, um, about who we could ask for endorsements. And they were like, we don't know who those people are. And to me, they're celebrities, you know, and right. I'd like network to try to meet them and stuff. And, and now everybody knows who they are in the mainstream literary world. Those are just two names by, you know, example, but there's a language and there's a, there's a, you know, a milieu that we've all been working in. And we, it's like, we've been, our books have been having conversations with each other for years. And now the straight world is paying attention. And I think, in terms of corporate publishing, it's partly because we're now, we can now make money um, because that's yeah. like the objective of most publishers. And I think a lot of queer writers have really thrived in the small press scene. Um, and we owe a lot to that world. Do you think that it's more of the fact that people are more like vocally out now so they can find the audiences but they still don't think that straight people want to read queer content like i i just feel like a lot of queer content is still seen as like oh this is just for yeah for other people mm-hmm. let's say a podcast called diking out um <laughs> that a straight well, person would think like no way <laughs> not for me yeah they can learn something uh, <laughs> just never say the name yeah <laughs> oh my god i need to tell you something about that in one second but it reminds me so much of an Amazon review I got from my first book that was just, it was so simple. It was like two sentences. It said like, I didn't know this was a gay book. I wouldn't have picked it up if I knew, but I ended up really liking it relating to the characters. And I was like, this is the problem. Like this, yeah. there's such a, right. there's a real issue with how we're taught to read and, and taught to, you know, no one would ever be like, this story's about a murderer and I'm not a murderer. I'm not going to read it. You know, <laughs> exactly. Like, the limits exactly. Of yeah. I don't understand it. And and also just all, all the straight content. Like we all watched Friends. Exactly. There, there exactly. was nothing for us in that show. We've been having despite to. Despite how many lesbians love Jennifer Aniston. Okay. I don't get it. Totally. There's nothing for us in this. Nothing. Show. And 
you know, we, you know, exactly. Like queer people have had to insert ourselves into straight and cis narratives forever. We know how to do it. It's like really not that big a, big a deal to like ask straight and cis people to do that now. In right. the same way to like to have that same imagination and, and empathy, ability to empathize. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it's so funny. I was so glad to get your invitation to the podcast because I had this strange experience of having a sensitivity read done on my book, which I've never had before. Oh. I have, and I feel weird about it. I have, um, <laughs> I have myself, like when a cu- couple of my books have trans characters. And so when I do, I've, I have like a, a bunch of friends and, and an ex who will read the manuscript at certain points. And just to, just to be like, this is right. This isn't right. You know, that kind of stuff, just sort of to, sure. to do due diligence. And so when they did the sensitivity read, I wasn't really sure what they were trying to do, but then the reader, I think felt like they were like, um, I don't know, maybe five years old, like maybe out for a day. And, uh, and they were like, you, you know, the word dyke is um, considered offensive by some. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, and I was like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, it was so, it was so, I had to like put my email down and walk away. Cause I was so angry and just like, <laughs> like it just, I just felt like how dare somebody who's probably like young enough to have watched Glee with their parents, um, right. you know, say that to someone who's had like beer cans thrown at their head for kissing a girl on the street, you know, or, you know, I've had the word right. die curled at me like many, many times in near violent situations. And like, how dare this person say that? Like, it was just, it felt like a, a failure on older queer people's part to, to educate the younger yeah. folks. Yes. And you've perfectly described uh, the type that seems to be most uh, luxury about five-year-olds. Yeah, five-year-olds. <laughs> five-year-olds. Um, about that, though, we had um, Natasha Negovanlis on the podcast, and she was even saying that she wasn't sure if she should be on the podcast because the of the name of it. Wow. Um, just knowing how sensitive her her fans are and saying that that's not a word that resonates with her. And we're like, not not everybody on the podcast identifies as a dyke. We just do. So but but that's fine if you don't. And in her just saying the name of the podcast in the context of I'm not comfortable identifying with this, uh, somebody attacked her on Twitter for it. Oh and it, it was it was just so crazy. And like she had to pull up receipts. It, it was nuts. <laughs> but granted, every Twitter profile we pulled up that was criticizing her for even saying that she was on the podcast and putting it in that context. Yeah. Did have 17 in their bio, like right. 17, 16, yeah. 18. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's just very interesting to be to be so so self-aware that that they're out at such a young age, right? They're coming out when they're 13, 14, but then also um, yelling at their elders for right. <laughs> self-identifying as dykes. Yeah. It's crazy to me. Well, I guess speaking of sensitivity and, and criticism, how has that changed over over the years? Well, it's interesting. Like I have made mistakes in my work before. Like I think about my very first novel that came what out. What are you, human? <laughs> Come <Right>. on. <laughs> like in particular, I used the R word in my first novel. And like it was just part of that early aughts ironic humor that people were being offensive to be offensive, like, you know, terrible time, really dumb. 
really don't feel great about it. And so like, you know, I wrote an apology on Goodreads for that. I do feel bad. I feel I like saw if that. Gets... no one ever does that even though like you had you. I don't know. I like that. <laughs> I feel like I didn't really have even though I kind of somewhat identify as a disabled person. I feel like I had no consciousness around ableism back then. And like it's, mm-hmm. it's like a thing that I've really been reading about and thinking about for the last five, 10 years. And so it did feel like, yeah. oh, this is significant. And if, if it's ever reprinted, I would like to, you know, edit that out. But um, yeah, I think in terms of sensitivity, like, I think it's really great that publishers and artists are like thinking about their positionality and, you know, that as a white person, I'm a white artist in a, in a kind of business that's rigged in my favor. Like there are lots of ways to to just be rethinking the 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 art that we're making and like for sure whether or not like you know just the positions I'm taking or that my characters are taking and that's like this is all good learning to do but there is there are generational issues like there are like a lot of really weird ways that I think young people are learning to read right now and like not really understanding what the role of fiction and what fiction is like a lot of um a lot of feedback around like a lot of reviewers and and talk on social media around whether a book is good or not has to do with whether or not the characters are good people or like relatable. Right. And I think this right. might be a bit about YA and like how it's marketed. I don't really read YA. I've but seen it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of YA drama online yeah. and a lot of it is is having these characters who maybe aren't perfect. It will definitely not perfect or, or so, some might be like outright racist right. and um and then being like oh there's a racist character in this book so that must mean that the author is racist yeah. and this book is bad rather than having that be part of the story because racism is part of life and um is has been like a theme in literature since you right. know, forever. And then, you know, you have th- sites like Goodreads and then that can like tank a book and all of that. Mm-hmm. It seems like a, a lot. And, you know, I, um, I've been following you on Twitter for a while. Do you get into like the lit Twitter drama? Cause that seems like a lot of times I'll just see like sub tweets about lit twit <laughs> drama yeah. and I'm like what is Tell happening this feels always the discourse I don't yes. I try to stay away from Twitter in general oh, you're so it seems intense. what's going on yeah there? it's yeah. terrible I mean it's great it's a great way to waste time and like uh it is a good t- good place sometimes to like have interesting conversations and meet people but yeah the main character syndrome like or the main character thing about you know you say one thing and then um, people jump on you. Like for me, it's a bit of like, if you're going to play, you're going to kind of have to accept that that could happen to you. If you're going to like put out content, you're going to offer your perspective. Like people are part of being a writer and an artist and having a public face and career is being able to take criticism. Um, but it's hard. It's like emotionally hard. And I feel like part of what's hard for me sometimes is to just remember that Twitter is only a small part of the world and it can seem like the whole world but the, i have friends who are never on twitter they don't give a shit they don't know what's going on in the day and their their lives are much better for it um and <laughs> yeah. it's like good to remember that 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 it's just a small part of the world i feel like in general to go back to the like goodreads situation i feel like there is a fundamental misunderstanding about how stories are created and why 
And when people criticize like TV shows or books for having, you know, bad characters or whatever, or for characters who make mistakes or are evil or weird or whatever, like, like you can't have a story without conflict. Like it just doesn't exist. Like what if you had two people who were just sitting around being didactic politically and like patting each other on the back, that's not a story. It's not an interesting story, but I do think that, that this conversation has kind of evolved from very real, important conversations around representation and the whiteness and the straightness and cisness of the publishing industry and the, and who, who, you know, who's in a writing room, who's on TV, Uh, all those conversations are like really crucial and really great and have led to some really amazing changes sometimes. Um, But I think this is like kind of the weird natural evolution of that is that it sometimes ends up in these bananas takes, you know? Yeah. 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 It it seems. And again, I'm like very outside the, the industry, but, but like you were saying with, um, you know, a greater sense of like um, awareness from the writers and the publishers and and trying to be a lot more thoughtful about these issues and, and the realities of privilege and, and whatnot is one thing. And that's been a, a very positive thing and for, for any artist to challenge ourselves to really think about the impact of, of our work. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it seems, though, from an audience perspective, there's almost like this over correction of them waiting to like hit the gotcha button or something totally (laughs) yeah and I feel like to a certain extent I like I try not to go on Goodreads I feel like it's not a place for writers I feel like it's a place for readers and to try to try to respect that but like you know it's it's not a neutral place the way it was supposed to be when it was created you know it was created right before Twitter and it was a good place for people to, to like be like to be in a book club kind of situation. And now it's owned by Amazon and it's not neutral yeah. and publishers invest a ton of money in sending out advanced copies of your book to like people who post a lot. And that can really backfire because, you yeah. know, if they send to, like I had an experience of my last book kind of having a bit of a mystery element, like it was sent to a lot of people who, when you looked at what their favorite books were, and then you looked at the bad review of my book. I was like, Oh, this makes sense. Like, cause the book was, you know, it was a literary fiction book and you can't send a literary fiction book to people who mostly like, um, paperback mysteries because they'll write things like this is really boring. There's just so much about the character. Like, because it's not a, <laughs> it's not a thriller. It's like, that's the form. It's right. a formal shift and difference. So, um, so it can, it can backfire for sure. And then also people get mean and petty and like, yeah. Yeah. It. I wondered about that, how those get distributed. I have a friend who just seemed to be going through a crisis and just like, I don't like to take pictures of her books and started like hashtagging bookstagram, like made her own like account. And it was like so much. And she wanted to get these arcs, but the only way she could was to build her like aesthetic on Instagram for like, so it was just, it seems like so much is just taken away from the actual book. What she gets sent doesn't make sense sometimes for like what she likes to read. Yeah. Yeah. But like, as long as it looks good on a pretty stack on this, like, stylized yeah. grid out of man it like yeah it's very intriguing it's weird <laughs> this world it's such a strange world I keep thinking you know we used to have literary critics who could make a living and we're serious and it's an art form in itself and now you just that just doesn't happen so yeah yeah sad. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Is there physical community? Like, I know writers, the stereotype a lot of the time are, are like shut-ins, like like to stay at home. Are there physical like meetups? Because at the same time, when you talk about a queer writing community, queer people tend to need community, crave community, and mm-hmm. seek it out. What's that like? So it's really changed over the years since I since I began my career. Um, I feel like when I first started publishing, there were about 10 queer authors in Canada and we would all be able to fit at a dinner table, you know, Um, (laughs) and we all kind of helped each other out behind the scenes. And now there's a lot, there's just so many more writers and it's awesome. And I think that, that, you know, pre COVID, it, it was, it still felt really important to me to like, we have a bookstore here called Glad Day Books and they do amazing literary events and like going out and being a part of that was really important to me. Um, you know, I think as I get older, I'm more like of an indoorsy person and less of a bar person. But um, but to me, the community is a big part of it. And also just sort of like, you know, helping to promote each other's work when they come out and being a cheerleader and that kind of thing. Love it. Is there a lot of drama, I guess, like offline, like between authors? Is there a lot of like, did you hear that this happened or this person's getting published or... You know, I used to be a reporter for a couple of years at what is essentially the Publishers Weekly of Canada called Clue Inquire. And like the gossip in that office was pretty intense <laughs> and, and all the time. And it was very funny. And it was usually about like uh, how big someone's advance was, uh, what somebody said at, you know, somebody got too drunk at the awards ceremony or like, you know, dirt who's dating who secretly, whatever, like, um, it, yeah, I think that like though nerdy writers can get, you know, as as petty as anyone. Um, yeah, but yeah, and now once I guess it's funny because usually like my book launched today in Canada, and usually what happens in a publicity cycle is like there are we have a lot of amazing literary festivals here. So often I would, you know, be flying somewhere new every week for a couple of months, and now it's like. I only have one festival that I'm going to go to in person. And so it's very different, but there's usually this kind of feeling that you have like a, like a, it's like you're in a graduating class or something. And it's like, whoever your cohort is that publicity season, you're going to see them in green rooms. You're going to see them at parties. And like, you end up feeling like you, you guys did a job together for a couple months. Um, And so it's different. It's different with COVID. Yeah, it is. So, uh, and I really thought that it would be done by now and that I would have a regular kind of, go with it but yeah do you have I feel like I'm digging for dirt but I'm really not uh but I want to want to ask like what are some of your pet peeves in terms of queer lit Ooh, interesting question I love that question I think that there are certain genres I'm tired of or don't I'm not drawn to and I don't think like I'm not bragging about it I don't like 
think it's great that I don't really understand sci-fi <laughs> or feel drawn <laughs> to it. And I think it's great that it's there's an amazing community of queer sci-fi writers. I don't personally get much from it. It gave us Scientology, so. <laughs> right. But also I feel like it makes sense. It makes sense that queer, like people who grow up feeling like outsiders are drawn to speculative universes. Like it, it actually, you know, right. I think that's why so many gay people love Buffy and stuff. I think it's mostly like a... a well, because Buffy's also the best show ever on TV. But anyway. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there she is. I think, I think, <laughs> yeah. Oh my Everybody in my life thinks so too. And I just have never, I watched, I watched a season or two, but. Yeah, same. That's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I really lean into it. I don't think it's the best show ever, but there. <laughs> uh... But mostly like, mostly the writers that drive me nuts are, are straight and like super entitled and snotty and elitist and all that stuff. But right like i don't really have a, a gay writer nemesis ah, no okay. man yeah. <laughs> sorry we think of things a lot in terms of the the comedy scene because melody and i both do stand-up oh, so awesome. it's like in terms of the drama and everything i'm so much more in tune with what all the queer people are doing because that's who i care about and who i'm interested exactly. in exactly. and i'm sure that the straight people are being like a billion times worse or whatever but i can't even tell them apart half the time you know oh my God, it's yeah. just like a blur of beards and yes and bad jokes yeah totally. yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you guys love douglas the uh, the hannah gadsby's second special um, you know, I couldn't even get through it. I didn't finish it. I'm so sorry. No, I got maybe I like, <laughs> okay. I got like five minutes in and I, and I turned it off and, and I saw like Nanette in person brag. I know I can't say it enough, but I did see Nanette in person <laughs> and I loved it and I thought it was brilliant. And then I started watching Douglas and I'm like, pass. <laughs> I feel, I feel good about this conversation because I feel like, I feel like secretly a lot of comedians are like a lot of them didn't respond to Nanette or, and especially not to Douglas. And I find it really curious because like people who, people who have studied the form and then, I don't know, I find it interesting. I was really taken by Nanette because I happened to turn it on and not know what it was. And I think I was like really surprised and that surprise was part of it. And then when I rewatched it, I was like, oh, I can see the crash. It's different when you've sat through a lot of like feminist talks and performance art and stuff like that. Like there were things that I think a lot of people a lot of critics thought were very new that didn't feel new about mm -hmm. it, you know? Um, yeah. But it was also very funny in part. So yeah, anyway, I'm just always curious when I'm talking to comedians, what, what they think. Yeah. yeah. And I don't, you know, I wish Hannah Gatsby uh, all, all the best. Of course, yeah. yeah. There was just sometimes I, for me with comedy specials, sometimes I'll just turn it on and, within five minutes, I can be like, I'm going to either have to try this again later. Like maybe I'm not in the mood for it. Yeah. it it's hard. It's very different too than live comedy. Like totally. I bet if I saw Douglas live, I would have enjoyed it a mm -hmm. lot more. Yeah. It's hard for me. It's increasingly harder and harder for me to like sit and watch a special. It has to be like really um, absurd <laughs> to really absurd, um, yeah. get me to laugh. Yeah. Like, yeah, I wish the person I was going to say was queer or femme or anything. I'm like Rory Scovel, just a straight guy, um, but who like is very, yeah, inverts stand up, is very um, absurd. And yeah, stuff like that. I love makes Julio, me laugh. Julio Tor Oh, Julio yes, Tor I yeah. love him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fast. Fast. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> Aquarius. He's an Aquarius. What's your signs? We're both Capricorns. Oh, interesting. A double Capricorn podcast team. 
yes. quadruple because we're both double Capricorns, what? both yeah. sun and rising <laughs> with moons that are earthy. Oh my God, amazing. Amazing. <laughs> How about yourself? Aquarius. Aquarius and yeah. the rest. I can't remember. I feel like my rising is It's okay. Is I used to not know it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just at this along. point. Yeah. Until Melody came along and then I was asked so many times. I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to have to look this up and remember it. Melody remembers it for me. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a Taurus moon, guys. Um. <laughs> well, speaking of of Capricorns and our Capricorn nature, uh, we're both very curious about your process for yes. writing. What are your routines? What are your rituals? Because you're very productive. Thank you. Um, it's like the only job... I recently discovered I have ADHD, and it makes everything in my life make sense because I can't really tell from the like very small, my apartment's always a mess, always has been. I just can't, like, I'm so disorganized. I can barely keep track of anything, but I can focus on writing projects, which is part of, I think the hyper-focus element of ADHD. And, mm-hmm. uh, see, and I've lost my train of thought. I'm just like illustrating this for you. <laughs> um, so my process is really like pre COVID. I would often write at coffee shops with friends of mine who were also freelancing. So my friend, um, Matt, who's a TV writer, we would often meet my friend, Allison, who writes novels and another friend who does podcasting. Like we would just kind of hang out and, and imitate what it was like to have an office because we would be able to like arrive and do like chit chat and, and like see another human being and interact and like have all that to do yeah. and then focus. And it really, um, helped me like feel like I had a real job, you know? Um, yeah. And I love that. Yeah. So that was my process pre COVID. And then occasionally I would have a couple of weeks here and there where I was in TV writing rooms. Um, but like since COVID, I've just really been sitting with my cats every day, all day kind of working. Um, I often like, will get up and go for a walk first and then do some house stuff and then focus. Um, and I usually like, I used to be able to write at night when I was younger and now I just, my brain shuts down at like six o'clock. It's like, finish the sentence, watch God's Girl, you know? Oh, yes. Do you journal? Are you a journaler? Do we do morning pages? I wish I still journaled. I think that there was something to it that I feel like Twitter has replaced journaling, which is awful to say. No, I mostly just, I start out with very messy, rough drafts. I'm writing a new novel right now. And I'm just sort of like, it's like doing a sprint where I'm sort of collecting things. And then I'll go back in the next draft and be like, oh, is she in a house? What does she look like? You know, do they really say this? Like there'll be a ton of exposition that I have to like slow down and make into real scenes, but having de- having deadlines really helps. Like having the pressure of failure helps, mm. you know? <laughs> yeah. Mm. This was the first book that I wrote having an advanced book deal. Like I sold it based on an idea and I thought that that would make me write faster. It turns out it did not, but it did (laughs) help me with some self-confidence, I guess. But yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The the deadlines definitely help. Like I just formed a a writing group with with a few people because without deadlines, I'm just nowhere. I'm not getting anything done in, in terms of writing. And even though like writing is probably the thing I love doing most, it's the thing that is like hardest to get myself yeah. to do. So I'm always so curious with other people um, and their process, like who, you know, get up and they don't do anything else until they've gotten like X many pages done. I'm like, but, but how? <laughs> like, like, are you just born that way? <laughs> to me, I'm chasing the high of having done it. Like that feeling of that feeling at the end of the day where I didn't write anything, like it happens. 
quite often actually, like, especially because I'm so bad at email and like administration and stuff. Like sometimes I'll just lose whole afternoons to like stupid emails. Um, but the feeling of having been productive is like, is such a high for me. And, um, and the feeling of not having written is such a fucking drag and kind of ruins my night that just, yeah, I guess my own mental breakdown possibility is what keeps me going. <laughs> I wish that would for me. I just yeah. sit in those breakdowns. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I hear ya. But I'm interested, like when I've ever I've done comedy and again, I'm not a professional, but I feel like, like writing my stand up sets. Uh, I just don't, I don't know how you guys do it. Like, and that feeling of, cause I always, I, I'm such a writer. Like I'm such a page based person that I often get up on stage and I'll still have my notes, like a super nerd who hasn't done it before. Yeah. Like I, that kind of the ease of being able to just tell your jokes and that the, them being in your brain. And I just, am, I really admire that because it's so it's very hard. Janine Garofalo to bring your well, notes right. and book. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> when you said that that you would like memorize her sets, I'm I'm like, wow, that that is quite the Has she. <laughs> that, that's like very, yeah, I know. Like she doesn't she doesn't even know her sets. No. I know, but she's so she, genius. She does, yeah. No, yeah, she does. I've seen her enough at at this point that what seems to be like this spontaneous happening, like there not, there yeah. is a lot of method to to the madness of Janine and just oh, what yeah. an incredible person. I just saw a photo of her on stage from a recent show and her notebook was on stage and I zoomed in, um, (laughs) which was probably a breach uh, (laughs) privacy. (laughs) But there was just like a few simple drawings on the page. So I'm like, does she maybe she just like it's just a part of (laughs) of the act. Yeah, it's like there was nothing really written. Right. (laughs) But there was like a picture of her leaning down to like check the notebook. It was very interesting. Oh, my God. That's so funny. I I think one of the last times I saw her, um, it was like a rainy day. So she had all of her notes in like a Ziploc bag, like tucked into her um, her fanny pack. Oh, my God. Amazing. And she's just like shaking the water off the Ziploc bag and then getting her notes. Uh, anyway, it's amazing. Yeah. When you were mentioning uh, gathering and researching for your planning, let, let's talk a little bit more going back to the spectacular or, or any book you've written, but how do you really get yourself into the the character's mindset? How do you create such just dynamic, realistic characters? What, what's the process for getting there? You know, it's different for every book. Um, sometimes I do, like when I had was doing, a, my second book has a lot of paramedics in it. So I did a lot of interviews with paramedics. Um, So sometimes I do that and there's sort of like character studies. And then sometimes I just take little bits of people I've met and sort of give them a different, like it kind of expand them, exaggerate them. I'm actually working on a book right now. This is very diking out about that's kind of loosely based on an ex-girlfriend of mine who lied to me about having cancer. (gasps) She was a pathological liar. And so I'm trying to write like a dirty John type book where it's like, uh, what it feels like to be conned by someone, but I, the character that it's narrated by two characters. One is like, I made her straight in the book and, uh, I don't, we don't, we don't need any more crazy lesbian books. Right. Um, <laughs> even though it would be cathartic, but like, so like there's a guy who's dating her and then there's a friend who meets her and they have these like really intense three months, 
three or four months of getting to know her. And I don't know if you've ever dealt with like a pathological liar or a sociopath. Yes. yes. Ah, oh, interesting. I answered your, your Twitter oh, post yeah. about it, but I only used one example because I've had many. Oh, wow. We're like magnets. Oh my God. I think writers <laughs> are actually quite, I think sometimes there's something about like the alchemy of um, and I, I think it's also because pathological liars are drawn to perceived power and like yeah. writers are, can be seen as interesting, even though they're not, you know, like, <laughs> um, that's so interesting. Yeah. So anyway, I'm trying, to, so I'm using like the feelings of the experience of having been conned to inform these characters and how they might react to someone like her. And it's interesting. It's, it's been a, it's been a real challenge because like, you know, the book so far is called The Fake and it's like going to be, the reader's going to know from day one that that she's a con artist, but like, it's kind of watching how they figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, now I just want to dike out about pathological liars because... <laughs> Are there more of them in the dike community? Because I have met two. The fact that we all, that we lit up yeah. when you said pathological <laughs> yeah, and had examples ready, yeah. Right? Actually, actually, I'm not sure. There is one who I think might have been gay, but wasn't ready mm. to be out with it or whatever, but did have a boyfriend in Canada um, the, who we all believed, yeah, to be <laughs> to be uh, a lie. But this one in particular is actually a tricky one. I was going to ask you, have you ever suspected someone of being a pathological liar and have been wrong? Because I thought this person was also uh, lying about having cancer. And I wasn't as close to them, but I had friends who were close to them. And when they would tell me these stories, I'm like, this does not make sense. Mm. And they were all suspicious too. So then years later... Ran into some other mutuals from college, and I'm like, hey, you knew this person, right? She was lying about having lymphoma, right? And they're like, she's dead. Oh, my God. Of lymphoma? I don't believe she died. No. I don't even believe she's dead. I don't oh my even God, believe she's wild. dead. I love it. I love but, it. but I like I could be wrong and I could be the biggest asshole, but I cannot find an obituary. Mm. But I also can't find any trace of them online. So I'm like, are they dead? Like I've spent hours wow. digging into this. But same? I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I don't know if I'm wrong. I don't know if this person's like alive or if they actually like faked their own death. But wow. anyway. That's Incredible. so I have a confirmed lying about cancer. My roommate, gay man, but so not dyke specific, but had a ex-boyfriend who lied to him about having cancer and ended up um stealing a lot of money from mm -hmm. him, getting him to make a GoFundMe. Took a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and then an another person who I thought was lying about cancer, and I was almost positive. Um, and then years later was like, wonder what happened to that person? Looked them up on Facebook and the picture was of them with um no hair. Oh. I still think they're lying. Like I, I still think I'm so sure that they've taken it to this extreme mm. where where they got their head shaved um, just to like go with the narrative because it wasn't even the cancer that they said when I knew them. It was like something else. Or cancer. Yeah. Mm. And I think yeah. that like, you know, I was younger when I had this experience and I hadn't met anybody with cancer. And the one person in my life who'd had a mom die of cancer when she met her was like, she's a liar knew right away. And I was like, wow. I don't know. I don't think so. And then later I was like, oh, that's because she knew. And then like, I, have, I had a good friend die of cancer a few years ago. And the experience of watching her be sick, I was like, I can't believe I, I believed my ex because it's so right. different. Right. If, if you've known anybody with cancer, then you can sniff out the people lying about cancer. Yeah, they do. And they it feels very crazy. differently. It feels totally yes. crazy. 
Yeah. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that book. Yeah, I hope oh. so. I hope it works out. I don't know. And eventual adaptation. I think right. it would be really cinematic. Actually, I feel yeah. like it would be a really good limited series. Definitely. Yeah, it's so crazy. Why? Why do people do that? I don't know. And I think like what drove me nuts was are the question of like, are they just really mentally ill? Are they sociopathic? Like, is there a difference? What kind of? And there are so many different ways that you can be diagnosed when you're in that scenario. And it's it's fascinating. But what occurs to me is like, now, whenever I meet somebody that I suspect is like pathologically similar, I know immediately. It's like a light shines down from the ceiling and I'm like, that person's too charming. That person's divulging too much right away. That person is like mirroring people to get them to like them. Like, yeah, you know, Ooh, there's like real telltale yeah. things. And like, I listened to a podcast about a con artist recently and the way that he manipulated people and the things he said, the phrases, the words he used, all the exact same as my ex. And so I feel wow. like, oh, it's, it's a real what was pattern. That? I want to Oh, it's to called, that. um, oh my God, it's so good. It was a, it was, um, do you, it's called, do you know Mordecai? And it's about okay. like a bunch of women who got conned by the Writing same man. Down. Yeah. It's really good. Nice. Yeah, I was excited when I started reading The Spectacular and I messaged Melody. I'm like, you're going to love this. There's cults. <laughs> yeah, very interested in I love- cults, cons. Oh, my God, me too. And I'm such a mark. I get conned and manipulated and taken advantage of all the oh, time. No. <laughs> no matter how much I think I'm fascinated and can like, tell these signs. Well, it's, you're just a trusting person. Yeah. 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 Uh, so you did say something about, you know, we don't need another crazy lesbian story. So when when you're writing, like how much of that does weigh on you? Because, yeah, as, as much as like when we write characters that don't have much representation, we kind of want to write them in, in a good, positive light and not have like a shitty yeah. queer character. But... As you we also, know, right. <laughs> there are a lot of sh- shitty queer people, just as there are a lot of shitty not queer people. People totally. are shitty. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts are complicated because I think that you shouldn't, like, I think writers can write about anything. You shouldn't limit how a character develops based on, like, you know, the stereotypes that might, that have, like, have emerged through straight people writing about gay people, you know, but I still feel like, I think it might be my generation. Like I would be on uneasy writing a bisexual killer character, you know, or like mm. um, there's certain stereotypes that I think just there aren't enough queer creators yet to have kind of even the playing field in some ways. So I'm still, I'm still worried about it a little bit and I probably don't need to be, but I think in this particular situation, I'm also trying to avoid you know, the real person I'm sort of writing about, like, I don't, I don't want to be sued <laughs> or like, you know, I still, I'm still like a tiny bit afraid of her. Um, and so I want to fictionalize in that way, but you know, it's, it's funny because like somebody was criticizing the white Lotus. Have you seen the white Lotus? Yes. Loved it. And someone was saying like, Oh, I hate that they killed the gay guy and that, you know, that was terrible or whatever. And I was like, I don't think it's really true that, that that was terrible. I think it was seemed like a surprise and inevitable at the end. Definitely and that, inevitable. He was on a destructive path 
from the start, you kind of saw it come, whatever. Totally. <laughs> I think you can tell when characters are written thinly and then right. gotten out of the way. Like you can tell when someone's killing the lesbian because they don't know how to write her or right. they want the straight man to get the girl or whatever. Like you can tell the cheesy, corny story choices um, from the like, you know, the real juicy, real stories. But it's still, yeah, it's a really good question. I, I I feel both that I shouldn't have to change a character for the sake of someone thinking it might be homophobic, but I also, as a queer reader and queer viewer, am tired of certain stories. So right. if I'm going to have like, I mean, I, you know, there are two queer characters in the book, so it's a bit different, but I feel like if there's only going to be one villain and she's queer, there's something about it that still makes me a bit uncomfortable. And maybe that's like a lack of sophistication on my part, but I just feel like it's just partly my age, maybe. I don't know. No, I, I get that because like the one, one of the good things about the L word, um, because every conversation will ultimately go back to the L yes. word, uh, yeah. is that finally you had a show that had so many queer women that you could have some of them be batshit crazy and it was okay. And Absolutely. then we wouldn't have gotten the gift of Jenny Schechter uh, without that. <laughs> totally. Totally. You did it, Carolyn. I did it. Every you episode. It in. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> there needs to be a drinking game with this podcast. Oh my god! Can I just tell you that I loved that? I can't remember their names totally, but I love that wifey punched Finley in the wedding episode. We are you caught up? Oh, on that Alex? Danny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Danny. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. It was a good. I punch. thought that was great. I feel like yeah. there's something about the L word, even for all its flaws, that you could just tell that it's like they don't really care about the straight <laughs> audience, right? Like they kind of right. don't give a shit. And I love that. And I love, and I think like there's such a, a surge of queer content now where they're kind of aware of like, like a, a Gen Z politically correct viewer. And yeah. like, but it just, it was true that Danny would have punched Finley and that everybody would have been like, yeah. And they don't need to have like accountability processes about it or whatever. They don't have to like, <laughs> I didn't even consider that. Right. Like it just feels true. It felt like yeah. a true dyke moment. And yeah. Yeah. It, it reminded me of like, I remember when I was really young and I was just understanding what Butch and Femme was and what bar culture was like. And, and my friend pointed out this like really popular, slightly older femme in, in the bar. And she was like, that girl walked into the bar and punched and like her girlfriend had slept with someone and she just walked into the bar one night and punched that girl in the face. And I was like, oh my God, that is so cool and weird. And like, I was so... It was just so funny, which is the antithesis of like the kind of lesbianism I was learning about in women's studies class versus like the bar culture right. lesbianism. It was totally different. And like, mm -hmm. it just felt like a moment that was also of its time because like, so if that happened now in that same age group, in that same world, would there be, like, would someone be canceled? Would like, you know, would there be conversations about domestic partnership abuse in the lesbian community, which are all the like, great things. And I think that there should be. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm not, yeah, I'm not being like a, uh, you know, a dick about it. But I just thought it like that moment on the L word really, really struck me because it felt real for a soap opera. And that's what the L word is. Right? Yeah. And right. it also feels kind of true to how the dyke world can be toxic and like can react in these kind of soap opera ways. Yeah. With the drama. And I just thought that was great. 
Yeah, I, I think with the context of all the n- now, you know, it used to be we just had the L word. Now we have so much more than the L mm. word. So the L word, like, thank you for um, continuing to do the stuff that only the L word can do. We don't need you to be that, you know, golden standard of, of television. We no. need you to be this Trash. trashy yeah, lesbian we'll never show. Be. Yeah. <laughs> love it. Just love it. <laughs> well, Zoe, thank you so much for speaking with us today about this and um, uh, about your career and everything. It's very interesting. I'm sure we have uh, a lot of listeners who are writers or love uh, literature, lots of uh, lit dykes listening to this <laughs> podcast. And is there anything else that you want to say about being a queer writer or the spectacular or... Well, I just really hope that The Spectacular finds readers in the queer community. And because some of the marketing of the book doesn't really explicitly say that there's a femme character and a trans guy and like that it's quite, there's quite a lot of diversity and like within the queer world. um, Because a lot of the, a lot of the publicity is about like how there are themes about motherhood, which is true. But I feel like sometimes, like, even just as a reader, I would maybe be like, oh, this book is about motherhood. Maybe I'm, I'm not into it. You know, like it can be marketed as like women's fiction or whatever. And like, that's not what it is. And so I'm really excited to be on this podcast and to do queer media because it's, uh, to me, it's a real queer story. Amazing. Definitely. Thank you for coming on. Where can people follow you on Twitter and elsewhere? Twitter. I'm on Instagram and, uh, I just have like four TikTok followers and all of the videos are of my cats. Great. <laughs> You're about to get 4,000 more. No. Yeah. <laughs> and that's at Zoe. Yeah. Uh, at Zoe, but all for TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for Twitter. Yeah. I don't know what my TikTok is. I think it's probably something with my name. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll link to it. Um, thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. It's been Zoe. so great to meet you both. All right, it is time for our listener question. Let's get right to it, Mel. Let's go. It's very on brand, on theme for the times. It's back to school, so let's do it. I was wondering, how did y'all find other queer people in college? I go to a very quote-unquote liberal college, but I can't seem to find, one, any lesbians, two, people who are secure with their queer identity. We have a lot of girls who kiss girls at parties kind of queer girls. How do you find a queer group that allows you to be your best lesbian self? You start your own. Yes. That's the direct answer, because when I was in college... You know, I was in college around the time that Facebook was starting up and that was how we started finding each other because it used to you would put like woman interested in women. Oh, my. Do you remember that? Yeah. And that's how you'd find them. And that's how you'd find it. And you could do a search and they let you search for other women interested in women at your college. And then we would just start messaging each other. That is literally how it happened. And then a bunch of them started a group and they called it Pink Taco Productions. (laughs) And they would host these parties around campus and they had a MySpace page and do the version of that that's (laughs) relevant to today. So start your own group. If you're out and you're secure in your queer identity, then it's you. You're the chosen one. Go forth and collect. 
Yeah, you're the one who is aware enough to know that there needs to be a group. A lot of girls are just figuring out that they might be queer. They might not know yet. You could be the gateway queer for a lot of girls. I mean, that's great. There are girls who kiss girls at parties. That's probably, they maybe help them realize there's so much more to the queer experience. Like, I was not out when I went to college. I was clicking that hyperlink on Facebook for sure. And like, (laughs) becoming aware of the other lesbians and sort of staring at them in the halls of my dorm, but like not doing anything about it. And that's something I regret. And it it should have, I should have done something about it. And that's why we think you just have to take action. There's so much more tech (laughs) now and media (laughs) for you to organize. You can advertise it. If Carolyn can do it on Facebook dot com and myspace you could do it i wasn't part of it i just was aware and attended and maybe made out with some of those ladies but that's what's for (laughs) but yeah you, you you can do it if if it doesn't exist if you build it they will come and that's it simply put Go. That's it, actually. You can do it. We have faith in you. You can figure it out. If you have a question for us, you can send it to dykingout at gmail.com. If you're a patron, let us know. Patrons go to the top of the question pile. That's patreon.com slash dykingout. We also put out extra episodes every single week where we are much more revealing about our personal lives or much That's less the word edited uh we are talking about current events all sorts of things pop culture lesbians gossip all of that is on our patreon every week for as little as five dollars a month so head there you can follow us on all social platforms at dyking out you can follow me personally at tgi carolyn you can follow me at melody kamali see you there make sure you check out the spectacular it really is a great read especially relevant to uh, things that are happening today it's very queer check it out thank you for listening and we'll see you next tuesday Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.